We've been pointing uh, quite often on this trip to the, the kind of natural immediacy of things and to being as natural as possible in our experience and in our practice and this sort of receptive mode wherein, like I was saying earlier, sensory life, bodily life, emotional life, mental life and the sense of awareness as the, the container of that without, make it, without reifying awareness into being a thing called a container which is why I also said empty container, transparent container. And on the one hand, it's helpful, I think, to, to look at the process of just of this being here from two sides, the side of awareness, receiving whatever's happening, and the side of experience, the arising of whatever's happening. And yet, with, and yet the art of that exploration and the, as it's happening is to be able to really to explore experience and to explore awareness without making them into two things because they're inseparable right there's you if you look at what's going on you can't have an experience without awareness right? what we call experience means oh something i was aware of something I'm aware of. So there can't be an experience without awareness. And similarly, there can't be awareness without experience. Try being aware of nothing at all. Right? Even you can have the idea, oh, nothing's happening. But that sense of nothing has a certain texture, has a certain flavour, has a certain colour to it. So, we, we inevitably and, and usefully we divide up this whole seamless um, uh, all-inclusive realm of life and life is the fundamental it's all life it's whatever's we seeing and hearing whatever's going on around us in what I recall world it's life life's effulgence life itself is so effulgent that it produces all of this people and plants and animals and planets and solar systems and galaxies it's just it's just life and you know in a way i find it most helpful to just let that enough of that be true the, to know it in the experience oh this is life life's effulgence rather than trying to figure out well how did life get here and what it's like the chicken and the egg so different religious systems have different cosmologies for trying to explain the beginning of life and the Hindu cosmological system or the Indian general cosmological system has these days and nights of Brahma you familiar with that these sort of these great long cycles where the universe comes into being born out of Brahma's navel which I'll speak about a little bit more in a minute <coughs> and then there's a day of Brahma which lasts, somebody asked one great yogi once, how long does a day of Brahma last? And the Brahma, so imagine a, a bird flies over a mountain every hundred years with a feather in its beak and brushes the top of a mountain. 
and however long it takes to wear and it comes around every hundred years <laughs> however long it takes for that bird with that feather to wear the mountain down that's how long a day of Brahma lasts <laughs> and then the day of Brahma go, turns into a night of Brahma night of Brahma is everything's dissolved all of existence is collapsed into the unmanifest for some inconceivably long eon and then the process starts again so just like a breath has its beginning and middle and end, small scale, and then the, the, the day, the, the sunrise and the heat of the day and the sunset has its beginning, middle and end. The whole cosmic cycle is seen as having its beginning and middle and end going on in the same <coughs> way, just as the same as the circular nature of life, birth and expression and death. So everything from the very small to the very large to the inf you know, infinitely grand is seen as following that same scale. And then in our own religious cosmology, which basically these days is the religious cosmology of science, right? and science is a religion actually in all the, in all the um, fulfills all the basic criteria of religion. It attempts to explain to us uh, how we came to be here and uh, give some sense of order and knowingness to actually the inconceivable mystery of life. So we can do that with what we call, science is a bit tricky because it says, oh, we're not a religion, we're trying to find the truth. But isn't that what all religions say? They do, they, what religions say, all oh, these other religions are, you know, religions, but we're the, we're the truth. Science says that in the same way. Science has a cosmology as well. It's called the Big Bang. It's just as much of a preposterous story as the idea that God in the heavens made everything in seven days. Right? There was absolutely nothing, and then bang! <laughs> well, what was, if it was absolutely nothing, what did the bang come out of? Hmm? It's just a creation mythology. <coughs> bang. But isn't the difference in science, sorry to interrupt, that they say they have proof, it's all there, they work it all out. Yeah, all that's exactly what the religions say as well. We've got a book, look, we've got, I've got a book that tells you exactly what happened in the beginning, called the Bible. I mean, interestingly enough, the Big Bang theory is being more and more discredited by science now. So the latest understanding is that actually the, the, the closest anyone can get, I mean, there's all kinds of holes in contemporary astrophysics, right? There's all kinds of things that don't add up. When you look at quantum physics, you know, it's very clear that a lot of the basis that physics is built on, it doesn't, when you start to look very, very small, it doesn't add up. So as above, not so below, it turns out. So the latest idea is, oh, actually the universe is beginningless and endless. Which I'm much more of a fan of that, that <laughs> view. Because that, as above, so below. Everything, our, our sense of everything is, is beginningless and endless. Our sense of experience is beginningless and endless. Okay, we don't remember the point at which... We've got a narrative that tells us about beginnings and endings. But actually, we can't find the beginning and ending of anything. <coughs> Everything that arises comes out of some conditions. It doesn't just arrive in a, it arise in a vacuum. So we can notice, oh, we can follow breath. But it's not like an in-breath, a, a breath just suddenly begins. It it's both begins and ends and is also part of this kind of total continuum all the time. So we're getting far away from house and everybody, but that's the nature of these things. So where do we go with that day of Brahma, night of Brahma, beginning as an endless experience? Mm.
So there's some, on the one hand, we have the, this whole seamless realm, edgeless realm, centerless realm called life. That's how we got into all that stuff, right? Life gives rise to all of this. And in the same way that we might look at plants and animals and then planets and solar systems and galaxies, etc., the cosmological view as just life. We tend to, when we think of life, we tend to think, look out there for life. Oh yes, that's, that's all life. You go into the forest and you see and feel life. You go up the mountain tomorrow and you see and feel life. I went for a walk with Babaji once. I think I mentioned some time, a few days ago, about some moment of complacency in my practice. Mm -hmm. And Babaji took me on this long walk. We went up high and... and uh, we met uh, this uh, mother <coughs> and son, and her husband had died three or four years before. And they were living very high uh, up, and they had a couple of cows there which they would milk. And the nine-year-old son would walk about 14 kilometers down and 14 kilometers back up every day to sell a couple of liters of milk. And there was, and there was the mother and son were surviving like that. And then Babaji looks at me, and we, we and then we come past, and she says, "Oh, Babaji, Babaji," and they of course want to offer tea, and they want to feed us, and offer what they have, which is all very, very, very little. And then I'm struck by, oh, and they were, you know, having so much energy investment of this little boy going down so far and back every day dutifully to sell the milk from his mother, and the tiny amount they have, and then they want to give to Babaji and me. So we drink our tea, and then my complacency is being... Babaji <laughs> looks at me and banged his stick on the ground. He said, Martin, life. Oh. And then from there we, we walked, and we walked the whole day, sometimes visiting people, sometimes just sitting and uh, you know, just looking at the mountain vistas. And just all the day I was just confronted by the ridiculousness of my own arrogance of thinking I knew anything about anything. And each time Babaji would somehow see the moment when I was most confronted by that, and he'd say, Martin, boom, we tap a stick each time, tap a stick and boom, life. So I came down from that walk that day with this very newfound sense of both wonder at and a certain, certain willingness or recognition of the importance of being humble in the face of life. So we tend to look at life out there. And yet we're also, our practice invites us to recognize the way this too is life. Life is happening like this. It's somehow easier for us to see that life is happening as trees and life is happening as planets, and life is happening as, you know. But then when it comes to human beings, like, oh, they're not life, they're these other tricky, tricky characters that we have to negotiate with in some ways. And so to, be, to really be able to see and know and feel ourselves and each other as life. Life. It's sort of, certain relief in depersonalizing this, and not having to feel so responsible for 
not being so embroiled in measuring and judging and uh, insisting and blaming and uh, goading oneself to be a certain way, certain allowing oneself to be life, not needing to present and posture and impress and entertain other people so much, rather allowing them to be their expression of life. And in the midst this amidst this great seamless expression of life that everything is, that the world is, that all of this functioning, body, heart, mind is, also just you know it's it's helpful to distinguish, to find to to explore and to really under feel into and to understand the different types of expression of life. And I think this belly, heart, head kind of typologies are a helpful one. So also in the Hindu system, of course, there's the seven chakra system. But and the, the three centers is a is a simplified form of that in different ways. So belly center. Have you some of you done that three center retreat with me? Uh, no. embodiment, love and wisdom, head, heart and belly. Yeah. So belly, center of embodiment quality of a certain finding, you know, the, the way the embodiment center lights up doesn't mean all of embodied experience is in the belly, but it's somehow focusing on and accessing and activating the energetic, you know, the center of belly has that quality of actually feeling an increasing sense of being able to inhabit the life that we are inhabit in a way that has a certain realness, a certain groundedness, a certain, um, yeah, a certain embodiedness to it. Mm. Heart. <coughs> Emotional center, center of love. And so the body, belly center is about the capacity to really inhabit and be intimate with life. Heart centers very much about that capacity to really respond to and care for and love life. Capacity to delight in the beautiful aspects of life. Capacity to be, have, you know, to genuinely, compassionately respond to the painful aspects of life. Heart's capacity to actually just open its the feeling capacity to the various vicissitudes and um, expressions of life. And then the wisdom center, head center, intuitive center, the capacity to really to be able to reflect on life, capacity to explore life, capacity to know life, capacity to see the nature of life. And those centers, if not cultivated also have their more um, you know when they're when it's greed hatred and delusion if you like when it's the the passions that are in charge then you know those we f might find ourselves more led by one or other center you know, the the, the, uh, the compelled version of belly center is really all about the kind of consumption of trying to get, have, consume, as if I can 
take into my body in such a way as to nourish my soul, you might say. And whether that's a kind of a compulsive uh, relationship with food or a compulsive relationship with sex or a compulsive relationship with you know, some form of s- sensory gratification. It's like it comes from a place of feeling actually an emptiness in the belly center, a lack of embodiment, a lack of capacity to, oh, to be in this expression of life at home in this expression of life that we are. And if I can't be at home here, then I kind of try to take the world into me in that way. And of course, nothing wrong with delighting in various forms of sensory gratification, whether it's sex or whether it's food or whether it's... Um, well, those are the only two that come to mind. <laughs> but, uh, you know, well, whatever it is, you can fill in your own blanks. You can see what my inner life's like. <laughs> but the difference between the the the, the delighting in whatever uh, enjo- you know delightful or enjoyable or gratifying aspects of experience there are, on the one hand, and on the other hand, this kind of neurotic or compulsive relationship that's there. And then the heart center, neurotic or compulsive, either the just getting very bogged down in emotional drama. If the heart doesn't actually, if there's not a softness or an openness or a, a refinement of heart, then the heart life tends to get stimulated by a lot of drama. Relationship drama, um, or just, you know, it's extraordinary. People can make drama out of anything. Mm-hmm. The drama that we make isn't very much about what's happening. It's really about all the emotional energy that we invest it with. All the, and then she said, and then he did, and then like that. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, you really, really want some drama. Mm-hmm. Or, the getting, or the getting swept up in a lot of... Uh, painful emotion swept away in anxiety or in anger in blame in uh, fearfulness (coughs) in resentment (coughs) in uh, that stuff until it sort of defines our life I had a friend that I used to know here in India and she was just always getting into fights with anyone you know, and we would all, we'd be moving around here and there, and we'd see each other at different places, and everybody would get into an argument now and then with a rickshaw driver or with something or something, you know. But it was extraordinary to witness anyone else negotiating with a rickshaw driver. And then as soon as this person started to negotiate, you know it was just going to become, you know, it was going to end up with her shrieking and stamping her feet and marching off, and then, like, just, like, everything, the world was a theatre for the acting out of her own un, um, you know, of the, the you know, acting out of uh, trying to relieve the heart through the kind of psh, the safety valve of dumping difficult emotions on other people. Mm. So some, some for some of us that more goes outwards: anger, blame, resentment. Some of it, times it more goes in the kind of a harsh way, beating up oneself, all that superego. Mara stuff. 
And so they were working with the heart center. It's really a way of, you know, it's a, just in the way that the working with the embodiment center is learning. You know, we have to learn how to inhabit our experience, learn how to come back to ourselves, learn how to find oh, that we can actually be at home in these cells. And learn that we can actually relax, even if the relaxation, first of all, you know, brings up layers of discomfort, layers of distrust, layers of, uh, of, of you know, whatever somatized difficulty is there. Learning how to relax into being at home. And so the work of the heart life is you know, a work of um, yeah, learning how to digest the emotional life learning how to be gentle with ourselves mostly as well, and then of course with others and then of course the mental life if it's run by compulsion and uh, neuroses just lost in our stories about things tendency to overanalyze and a need to understand and when I say need to understand, I mean in the, in the conventional way of understanding. The need to, to understand it in rational terms, and kind of the, the tyranny of empiricism. And it's not that I want to be in any way anti-intellectual, right? Because empirical understanding, is re- if you're an engineer, it's really helpful. I'm not suggesting engineers abandon and just get, get a feel for whether that bridge will hold up trucks or not, right? Some, some Indian bridges look like they've been built a bit, a bit too intuitively. But the way that can become a kind of mania for us, right? And of course, the Western culture is one which is heavy on the, the more compulsive aspects of... of uh, you know, over-mentalizing things. Indi- Indian culture is, can be very compulsive over on the aspect of over-emotionalizing things. A lot of drama, you know, the, the religious epics. Uh, so in the same way that science is an aspect, in a way, as our, as our kind of cultural religion these days is, a, is a, an expression, you know, both brilliant of, of the mind's capacity and also feeds in the wider culture into a terms of an over-intellectualizing. The Indian religions, they're full of emotional drama. You know, the Ramayana, the, ba- the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata. I don't know how familiar you are, maybe a little bit with some of those epics. But they all involve these kind of, you know, great, enormous cast of thousands of, of gods and humans and celestial beings doing great war with each other across eons and against this vast cosmic landscape. And that plays out in the culture with a lot of, a lot of, a lot of emotional, uh, emotionalizing. And then the work really with the wisdom center, the work of working with the mind is really about, in many ways, like we start in Dharma practice with just the basic practice of just letting go of thought, letting go of thought, letting go of the, the need to understand actually, letting go of the rationalizing, letting go of the storytelling, letting go of the narrative, letting go of the futurizing, letting go of the uh, repeating of the past in some way. 
And it's not that we're trying to do away with the mind in some way, even though that's a very common delusion, right, about meditation, that we're trying to be thoughtless in some way. Actually, we're trying to get some, a little, just leave alone our habitual, rational thought, discursive thought process a little bit, so as to actually start to make way for some of the fuller, freer capacities of mind to understand, you know, what we might term, I quite like the term, but a holistic understanding, or multi-dimensional understanding. It's just, it's holy, uh, Diwali build-up fireworks. No cause for love, just, yeah. And we might start to taste, you know, the ways in which our mind can actually uh, learn rather than just reducing all of our experience to an idea about what's happening. Rather than reducing all our experience to subject, me, the experiencer, an object, what's being experienced, I can actually start to kind of... Um, to just to hold, just to hold and allow experience in a way that doesn't need to be reduced to a conventional understanding. Often when we have those kind of exper- experiences that we refer to after as being mind-expanding, you say, oh, wow. It feels very like, wow. And then the experience is very mind-expanding, but then the experience ends and <laughs> come back to this again. Oh, my God, that pinched, narrow place of conventional mind. And we say, or we feel, or think, oh, that was so amazing, but how could... I could I couldn't function like that, right? Or it seems like that, so rarefied a state like that, that how that couldn't be part of ordinary experience. It must only be available in some very rare moments. And then we're back to the familiar, and we're thinking, thinking, thinking. And then, like we said earlier, then we try, we try to get back to there, or we settle for mind's version of what that was, etc. But actually, it's also a way in which we're kind of learning that kind of capacity. And it's not that what we learn is to not be like this anymore, narrow, but to just be wide open, intuitive, all-inclusive all the time. But actually what we start to learn is that, oh, that this, sometimes this, sometimes this, sometimes this, happen much more often. So this just becomes not permanent, because like we were saying the other day when we were talking about mind states, there's no permanent mind state. But this becomes much more common, and we like, we start to know how we we can rest in an openness of mind that doesn't need to be worried about whether it's like this or like this. An openness of mind that doesn't need to reduce the vastness of true understanding to a kind of the petty understanding of having of being able to explain it in some way. And there's something very valuable, I think, about just the process of just becoming more familiar with open-mindedness or vast-mindedness, free-mindedness. Okay, because then we start, as this becomes more normal, we find that, oh, actually one can f- function with a very vast and open mind. One can function quite well with a quite thoughtless mind. Actually one can function, one finds out, much more efficiently than with a narrow mind, because narrow mind, all the thoughts are being squeezed through the bottleneck of ordinary mind. <laughs> That's why it feels so busy. Right? But when those same thoughts are happening in vast open mind, 
Oh, thought life can still be there, but it's not taking up so much room anymore in all this vast space. So as well as thought life, there's room for kind of an intuitive understanding, an embodied understanding. There's room to actually be just acting and speaking and responding to life, and at the same time, in the openness, room to be also just kind of really processing an experience in different kinds of ways. Ways that we can't really imagine when we're just uh, locked into a narrow mind. So, so sometimes that practicing with the wisdom center is just a question of being willing again and again for the thousandth millionth time, again and again, just oh, dropping the thought, dropping the thought, dropping the thought. Just Oh yes, just coming back to body and breath. Just coming back to body and breath. And how easily we get discouraged. Oh, that's all I do in meditation. I just get caught up and then come back to body and breath. If that's true, fantastic. Really. That's all you need to do in meditation. Just keep coming back to body and breath. And why are you still doing it after these months and years? Because there's benefit. If there hadn't been any benefit, you would have given up by now. Right? So just that coming back, it's, you're really cultivating that capacity to not be so identified with, with narrow mind, compulsive mind, analytical mind, neurotic mind. In the, in the Hindu uh, three-center tradition, how long have I been going on for? Oh, it's okay. <coughs> you can drift off if you feel like you've had enough at any point. Please feel free just to drift off to bed. In the, um, in the Hindu uh, three-center thing, so the, the, the Trimurti, we'll maybe see at Bhagsunag tomorrow, there's a, there's a restaurant called the Trimurti um, something or other, guest house or something. <coughs> so three means three, Murti means uh, image, or usually used for statue. So the Trimurti are Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh. Is that any familiar? Brahma. So Brahma is the god of origins, right? The every, this whole universal cycle is a day of Brahma. Vishnu is the god of... Uh, lastings. Lastings, uh, expression. And then Mahesh, another name for Shiva. Shiva is the god of destruction and uh, renewal. And the, you know the three syllables of Om, right? Aum. So sometimes we just see it as <coughs> Om, O-M, but actually it's got three parts, Aum. And um, I had this great poster I brought back from India in the first time I was here, and it's just got a big Om in the middle, and then underneath it says, it says Om has over a hundred meanings. One of them is welcome to the gods. I never really, it doesn't really mean anything, but I just liked the sentiment of it. So we had that for years at home. Om has over a hundred meanings. One of them is, welcome to the gods. And I always used to read it in that kind of Hollywood film announcer voice when I would read it in my head. It seemed to me like that. So, the world is born from Brahma's navel. So there's that sense of Brahma being about origin, creation, belly. Remember we talked about Joni Somanisikara in 
belly embodied attention and bellied attention, womb born activity, and then the sense of the taking birth from Brahma's navel. And there's a, there's a lot of imagery, and I don't I don't know how much you've had the chance to see some of, a lot of the different pictures of gods or make any sense of the some of the imagery or symbolism of Indian gods. It took me a long time to just to discern like what's what's the connection between the picture of Lakshmi like this sitting on a lotus with gold coins spewing forth from uh, or Durga with all these arms riding on a tiger or Shiva with a leopard skin sitting on a mountain top. Well, I didn't. I, it took me a long time to to really to kind of sort of well fall in love really with with the symbolism and find oh and just to to feel into the that sense of what's communicated. There's something when I see that picture of Shiva of blue dreadlocks mountain top now. The, the qualities of that I can really feel the qualities of that, but you know, for a long time they just look like slightly gaudily painted kitschy mm. images. I mean, they still do look like that to me, too. <laughs> but, uh, so, ah, ah, is the symbol of that, that kind of wakes up the belly center. And it's very interesting when I teach the retreat on these three centers. We, you know, we, the, we spend the time that we spend on the belly center, just, ah, you know, naturally has a resonance. If you let it, your central channel be <coughs> open, naturally has a resonance down there. And it's interesting, Brahma, Brahma, Brahm, it's the main syllable of Brahma, is that ah. And so Brahma's all about belly, and giving birth to the universe from his navel. And then Vishnu, ooh, ooh, naturally has a resonance in the heart center. Vishnu, and it's the main syllable. Most, the most, um, well-known expression of Vishnu is Krishna. So Krishna is all about love, playing the flute, surrounded by gopis, you know the gopis, the daughters of all the cowholders. So Vishnu is like the Pied Piper, he plays the flute and all the, all the cowherder girls come running and he frolics and, uh, and, it's, and, and yet that, that is kind of, and then that Hare Krishna stuff, all the devotional uh, things, it's not about the activating of the the heart life. And then Mahesh, Mahesh, Ma, uh, no, Mahesh, <laughs> Mahesh, the, the mm of the head center. And certainly, mm, as soon as you close the lips, mm, has natural resonance in the head. And I think, did we mention that the other day? The sense of Shiva being head center, mountain mountain top and the snake around the throat and uh, all that. So those kind, that kind of symbolism I found uh, took, uh, yeah, it was a long time somehow before that came alive for me. In fact, symbolism generally, I don't know how that is for you, maybe it's just different for different people. I was a very, very, very slow learner with symbolism. It's partly what I liked about uh, Buddha Dharma, there was not much symbolism. It's just like, okay, sit down like this, cross your legs like this, attend to your breath like this. It's like, oh, great. It's really clear instructions. And yet, you know, living with my teacher up there and also spending a lot of time in devotional practices. Once I chanted that Hare Krishna mantra for 36 hours non-stop, 
in Pushkar during the Navaratri festival. And it was just f fabulous. And life was going on. It was in this temple. They were doing nine days and nine nights nonstop. So the whole of life is going on in this temple, making chai in one corner and cooking in another corner, and people chanting, 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 so tired they just fall over asleep for a few hours, and then they wake up, Krishna, 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 sit back up, carry on, and then people would be fed, and then some people stop to eat, others are keeping it going, and then others join back in. I always found that devotional practice is very, uh, very rich somehow. And so on the one hand, there's that sense of just, um, you know, living with Babaji was very embodied practice. We just, we sat at the fire a lot and we grew potatoes and fl flowers. It was a garden work and just somehow very earthy life of mountain. And then these uh, singing kirtan and bhajans and uh, chanting and... Uh, you know, the loving going to temples and the, you know, liking bowing and the touching the feet of uh, the, the various images. And I just, I love that stuff. And the way, you know, really gives rise to devotion. And it's not so much about, you know, again, the kind of rational, over-rationalizing or mentalizing. Well, who is it that's in the statue and why am I touching the feet and what does it mean when I bow? You know, just, oh. The, the way the heart comes alive in that willingness to kind of fall in the dust at the feet of life, really. If we really want to know what the temple is about, what the statue is about, what the incense is about, what the, it's about life. Life filtered sometimes through a lot of symbolism, which one may or may not understand, doesn't need to understand. Most helpful is just to see it as life. And somehow, particularly the, the couple of years that I spent uh, with Babaji, the sense of nature as the devotional theatre. I remember saying to somebody, oh, who was asking me, who my teachers, who was your teacher? And I used, that feeling I've had the good fortune to practice with some teachers that I have a huge amount of respect for. But in the end, nature has felt like it's really been my guru in the way, you know. And that sense of walking in the mountains, being in forests, and that kind of you know, sort of stimulates a certain devotional you know, wonder, you know. Like we're saying, wonder that there is anything at all. And there's, there's something about the vastness of a certain landscape, the vastness of desert, the vastness of mountain the vastness of the night sky, and just the, that op sort of naturally allows that opening into the wonder of life, devotional capacity to life. And I think devotion is a quality that's, in some ways, maybe, well, maybe that's not true. It's certainly the one that's most missing in, in Western culture. The bit that I thought is not true, I was going to say, I think it's maybe the bit that, that's most transformative. I'm not sure it's necessarily most transformative, but I think it's most missing. You know, our, our societies have become so secularized that they don't, we don't, there are no obvious objects worthy of devotion in our culture, which is kind of a sad thing, really. So the devotion goes on to you know, football players and movie stars. Who are not really very worthy objects of devotion very often, however fit or fabulous they might be.
But I think, is that true? Do what are the other, can you think of obvious <coughs> worthy figures of devotion culturally? We don't have that now. So I think, Harry you know, Potter. Harry Potter, Potter. right, Potter. right. And so that, that really served somehow the waking up of the heart life. And then Buddhist practice very much served the kind of the, the putting down of the rational or the, or the learning to create some space around the rational. And so I remember when I was really torn between, on the one hand, ordaining as a Buddhist monk, but I felt like I didn't, there was something stopping me from ordaining as a monk because it felt a little dry, and I felt the missing of the heart life in it. And yet, even though I was living with the, not just Babaji, but hanging out with other kind of hermits and wanderers and ascetics in India as well, there was something stopping me from just giving myself to that life, because it felt like it was lacking some of the precision and clarity that I really valued in Buddhist practice. So when somebody asked me, so, well, so what are you practicing? Are you Buddhist or Hindu? I said, well, Buddhist mind, Hindu heart, English body. <laughs> and trying to do my best with, uh, with the mix of all that. So it's maybe an interesting reflection for us. Like I say, on the one hand, we have this seamlessness. It's all happening. And uh, our practice, most essentially, just like we were exploring outside on the veranda this evening, is just to receive it or make room for it all, be intimate with it all, and you know, in a way to trust in the, more, the closer we can be to experience, the more capacity we have to meet it and explore it and feel into and find out about it. And you know, that bears fruits. It bears fruits absolutely inevitably and certainly. And while allowing for the seamless and whole and all-inclusive nature of that. So worthwhile just to see, what am I doing that's fostering embodiment? It's waking up the belly center. It's allowing me really to be here in this right now. And similarly, what am I doing that's uh, cultivating the heart life? It's helping me to kind of free up some of the emotional uh, defensiveness or emotional uh, drama or the emotional cut-off that I know is my pattern and helping to be, me to be more refined with emotional processing, more loving and responsive with the heart. And what am I doing that's cultivating a certain clarity and spaciousness of mind? Capacity to meet experience in a way that doesn't just reduce this vast, mysterious realm to something I can understand or make sense of. And so that in that way we, we get to kind of activate, align and bring to a certain flourishing and fulfilment the three centers. So that the ah and the oom and the mm, you know, resonate together, which is what the om is all about. That resonance, which is the origin of the universe. Om being seen in the, the Indian tradition as the, the primary syllable, the origin of all things. So, 
room for the ah, room for the ooh, room for the mm, and then the way those can come together so that we know ourselves in a way, if we're using that language, as this expression of the cosmic principle. Whether we call it cosmic principle, or whether we call it om, or whether we just stick with the simpler, what we st- where we started with life. So we can know. The more we can know and see and feel and trust ourselves as being this life, the more we know our alignment with that. The more quite naturally, kind of graceful and aligned and responsive and skillful our. Uh, our expression of that lifeness that we are is so those are both some reflections and mostly hopefully some invitations and the opportunity just to reflect in terms of the centers and uh, some one or other or maybe all but maybe that one or other feels yeah well well engaged with well taken care of or well given support to, and it may be that one or other or more feel like oh it might be I might want to emphasise a particular practice or take up a particular practice or pr- or carry on with the same practice that I'm doing but in such a way that gives particular support to to that. Otherwise, we tend to practice in in a with what's easy, tend to practice with what's already quite well cultivated because it's more comfortable. And I remember that wasn't so cultivated and that wasn't very comfortable, so now it's gotten cultivated a bit, I'd rather just stick with that. And so don't ask me to turn in the direction of what's uncomfortable. And yet, of course, when we, if we recognize that going on, we also know, actually, that's why I'm in this practice. Because I do actually want to turn to what's uncomfortable. Because I know that it's in turning towards it that gives it the space to be seen and met and resolved. So, may we turn to whatever needs attention. So that we can live this life that we are fully and fluidly and freely. Okay, friends. Well, I heard your request for some exploratory time, Sandra, as well, but I see a lot of eyelids getting heavy. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's uh, probably more than enough for this evening. Yeah. Sleep well, friends. Yeah. Let's... Um, we'll like breakfast at nine, so let's we can meet together just at eight thirty to sit for half an hour before breakfast. Those of you who bounce out of bed before that, you can sit for longer if you like. You can do all kinds of impressive yoga practices, but eight thirty. I would say let's let's plan on sitting out there. I think it won't be too cold. I think it'll be nice to sit out there. If we find that it's too cold, we'll just give up and come in here. But the plan would be eight thirty out there. Bonne nuit, sleep well, Shubharatri. If you want to learn how to say good night very nicely in Hindi, 
Shubharatri. 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 Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.